if you're able to stand, let us show reverence to the Lord as we join in hearing his word. The Old Testament reading this morning comes from Genesis 21, 9 through 20a. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heirs with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever, whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with this child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, but the distance, about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, let me not look on the death of the child. As she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up. Our New Testament reading comes from Romans 6, 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus was baptized unto his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism unto death in order, in order that Jesus, just as Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might too, we too might walk in newness of life. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. Good morning. It is a... It's always just great to see all of you uh, every week. I just love this church. Uh, please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. Um, and Lord, we are once again amazed at your goodness to us. We thank you, Lord, for 
another opportunity to be in your presence and get to know more of you, to fall in love more with you, to be able to hear your word. We pray, Lord, that you would help our hearts, unite us now as your people to hear these words and by the power of the Holy Spirit to live upon these words that we may glorify you in our lives. This is our desire and this is our prayer. And we pray this in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. So for the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about the covenant promise in Genesis uh, 12, 15, and 17, of course, with Abraham. And God makes this covenant promise with Abraham that through his offspring, he will make a great nation of Abraham and that they will be the people of God and that through this people of God, that the other nations, all the other nations of the world will be blessed through them. And then on the other side, in our New Testament passages, we've been reading about grace and Paul has been teaching us through Romans chapters 1 through 5 about what grace is and how grace is better than the law and really better than anything and that only through grace are we able to be saved and so uh, this week we are continuing that we're going to be talking about grace and as I was preparing this sermon uh, because we've been talking about Paul's teaching so much about grace, I wanted to maybe focus a little bit more about Abraham and do it on Genesis, but the more I prayed and the more I, uh, you know, wrote my sermon, the more I just kept going back to Paul's teachings in Romans, and so uh, we're going to learn about grace again this morning, uh, and if this is your first time at Grace or uh, your returning uh, guest at Grace, then uh, it's a perfect topic because we are Grace Church, so we learn about grace. And we're, I, think, I think God's grace, I can see it abounding in a lot of you, uh, in, in many of you, in so many ways. And so, uh, as we continue this story in Genesis, we read that Abraham is given this promise, and it's reaffirmed and reaffirmed this covenant promise to Abraham from God. And the promise begins with a seed, of course, and it begins with Isaac. However, for many, many years after Abraham is given this promise, Abraham does not see this promise come to fruition, to fulfillment. And so we read in Genesis chapter 16 that Sarah and Abraham, they try to take things into their own hands. And so Sarah gives Abraham to Hagar, their maidservant, as a wife. And through Hagar, they have a son named Ishmael. Now, we don't know what happened throughout, but we do know in chapter 16 that Sarah's jealousy, her anger, right, rises up, you know, from inside of her, and she casts out Hagar while she's pregnant. And while Hagar is pregnant, she's cast out of her home basically to die, but the Lord saves her. The Lord hears her and saves her, and then he tells her to return. And so we see that Ishmael is born into the household of Abraham, and for many, many years, uh, Ishmael is raised as Abraham's own son. Now, as we talked about last week, God, he came and he told Abraham and Sarah that this promise would be fulfilled by their own son. And so we read of the birth of Isaac. And now we are in chapter 21 where Isaac is now, they're celebrating him and, and he's probably two or three years old. We don't really know how old he is, but he's a, a couple years old. And it's at this point where Sarah's kind of jealousy 
right? That, that whatever it was, all these years, this pent up, whatever it was, it, it comes back out. And so we see that Sarah basically forces Hagar and Ishmael to leave their home and sends them out into the wilderness. And so this is an interesting story about the covenant, right? The story of the covenant of Abraham because throughout the Bible thus far, for, for most of the stories, the good guys have been the people of God, the chosen people, those who are righteous, those who stand up for righteousness and holiness, and those who obey God and love God. And the bad guys have been those who reject God and disobey God and go against God's people. Like in the story of Cain, Cain who was unfaithful, who was disobedient to God, he killed his brother Abel, who was righteous in the eyes of God, who was faithful, who gave a faithful offering before God. So Cain represents the bad people, right? The, the ones that aren't chosen. And Abel represents those who love God, who are chosen by God. And Cain is the bad guy because he kills Abel, who's innocent. In the story of Noah, we read about Noah being the only righteous person on the earth. And he loves God and he obeys God. And so God saves him and his family while he kills everyone else who does not love God, who is living in wickedness and evil and hates God. And so the one who is good, who is righteous, who loves God, again, is a good guy, is saved. And all the evil people, all the bad people are not saved. Now the reason why I think sometimes this story is so uncomfortable for us is because the tables have turned. It is indeed the chosen Abraham and Sarah and Isaac who are actually the guilty party here. And it's actually Hagar and Ishmael who didn't do really anything. You can't really know. You can't really read. You don't know what they did, what maybe Hagar did something or Ishmael did something to provoke Sarah to cast them away. We don't know. But on, on the surface, it seems like it was wrong for Sarah to get angry because she's actually the one that came up with the idea in the first place in Genesis chapter 16. And then she's angry at, I don't know, someone else. She's blaming other people for her own folly, for her own mistake. And she, she's like, I just want to get rid of you guys. So she casts them out into the desert, into the wilderness to die. And we look at this story and we say, how can this be? Shouldn't it be Abraham and Sarah that are punished, and shouldn't Hagar and Ishmael be blessed? Yet we know throughout the Bible, the lineage of David, the lineage of Christ does not come from Ishmael, comes from Isaac, comes from Abraham. And so, though sad, though for some of us it might seem like this is some sort of injustice that is happening, through this story and Abraham's story of the covenant, we are reminded of the love of God again. The love of God not only to his chosen people, because even though Abraham made a lot of mistakes and Sarah made a lot of mistakes, that because of his covenant promise, we are reminded that he loves his chosen people and he continues to use them despite their follies and their mistakes. But we are also reminded that God loves those who are left out who are without hope, who are cast away. It is a reminder of what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. 
Paul, he reminds us that grace means that we all need justification from God through grace. It's a reminder that God's covenant extends not only to his chosen people, the Jewish people, but to all people, Jews and Gentiles alike, all those who have been united with Christ through his death and resurrection. And so, as we look at this story of Abraham, we have to ask the question, what does this teach us about us and what does this teach us about God? So firstly, as I mentioned earlier, this story teaches us that there is no righteous side or a better side when it comes to people, when it comes to human beings and mankind. The notion among the Jews was that since they were the chosen people of God, that they were more righteous. They were better than all the other nations because God chose them in particular. They worshiped the true God. They went before him. They were the ones that had the law of God. All the other nations were evil. They were deserving of punishment and death because they did not worship God or have his laws. Yet this morning's Old Testament story is a reminder that the Jews were also sinful. They also disobeyed God, and they are also deserving of God's punishment, even though they had God's law, and especially because they had God's law. Regarding this, Paul says in Romans chapter 2, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Now Paul, of course, teaches us this rich doctrine of grace here in Romans, but also we see this throughout the New Testament in the Gospels even. John the Baptist when he's baptizing the Jews and he sees the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders come to him, this is what he says to them in Matthew chapter 3. He tells them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. What is John saying to these Jewish leaders? He's saying, don't think that because of your lineage, just because your blood says that you come from this line of this chosen people of these Jews, don't think that because of your family or your heritage that you're saved. And further, Jesus says to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. 
So then here, Paul and John the Baptist and Jesus, they all emphasize that whether you have the law or not, even if you know God or not, you cannot boast in your heritage or your lineage. You can't boast that you know the law of God or that you sacrifice at the temple or whatever it is because, as he says in the next chapter in Romans 3, Paul says, we all sin. Jews sin, Gentiles sin, we all sin and we all fall short. So we are all in need of the grace of God for salvation. He goes on further. He says, then this, this gift of salvation is a free gift. It is given through faith by grace. We see this when God is with Hagar and Ishmael and he saves them. Hagar and Ishmael being Egyptians, they are not part of the people of God. They are not the chosen people of God, the covenant people of God. Yet God hears them and saves them. And he says, even through you, I will make a great nation. What is he talking about? He's talking about there's no Jew or Gentile. You see, back then, all of the nations were divided. But through Jesus Christ, God has redeemed all of his people from all nations. And this is what we see even in Genesis chapter 21. So Paul says in Romans 3.30, Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith. So firstly, we understand of God from this story that there is no better side, that we are all sinners and that we are all in the need of a Savior. But secondly, we learn through this story more about the grace of God that the grace of God extends far beyond our expectations and even beyond our own comprehension, our understanding. The casting out of Hagar and Ishmael, it brings to mind other people that were cast out. For example, we read about Adam and Eve being cast out of the Garden of Eden and Cain being cast out of his home and his land after he kills his brother Abel. In both of these instances, the main offenders were removed from blessing. They were removed from the better life that God had given them. They were punished for their wrongdoing. They were cast out of their lands. Yet, in both of these instances, they were also spared by God. And God even continued to be with them throughout their lives. In the same sense, though we don't know what the problem was between Hagar and Sarah or Ishmael and Isaac. Hagar and Ishmael are cast out. They are punished. Yet God spares their lives and he even continues to be with them. We can't understand why. Right? We don't understand why God is so gracious to those who might even reject him. To those who sin against him to those who don't deserve his promise, don't deserve his grace. Yet he is gracious to us all. And that is how we know he loves us. Hagar and Ishmael's peril, this casting out can represent our peril, our peril of sin. That just like Hagar and Ishmael, we were also without hope. And our only possible outcome 
was death. And so God, in our most dire time of need, and when we were in sin, when we were most undeserving, he came and gave us grace and a life of new hope. So we who are all on the wrong side, we who are all undeserving, received the grace of God freely through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, most evangelical Christians will agree until this point that we're all undeserving, but that God's grace is the only thing that can save us. Our salvation is not based on us, but it's only based on God. Now, a lot of evangelicals will say, yeah, yeah, amen, amen. But then what happens afterwards becomes a subject and a topic of debate. What happens after you're saved? What happens after justification? What about adoption and sanctification? Who's doing all of that? The Reformed understanding of sanctification is that since we're regenerated by the Holy Spirit, by the power of God only through grace, that we are also justified by the power of God and only through grace, that then we are also sanctified by the power of God and by his grace. You cannot separate the work of sanctification and justification. You can't split them up because the latter, sanctification, flows from the former, justification. So then we are adopted and sanctified and we are glorified all through the power of God by the grace of God. Now, some view this understanding of salvation and they look at, you know, reformed doctrine and they look at our view of sanctification and they say, that's a little bit too loosey-goosey for me. Because they ask questions like, well, if you say that even your sanctification is by the grace of God and it's only by the power of God, well, won't you abuse that grace? Then technically, can't you just keep living in sin and desiring the things of the world and you can just say, God's grace, and you're still saved. Ah, I, can't, I, can't, I, can't, I can't get behind that. I need to be able to do something. You need to be able to live a righteous life. You know, now that you're saved, you know, you, you know the laws of God, and, and you, you, you've been touched by the hand of God. You know, you have to live right. I, 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 don't, I don't know. Sanctification, yeah, it, it depends on God, but also you have to do something about it. And they think, ah, oh, that, that reformed version of it, ah, I don't know. That doesn't work. Well, there is a well-renowned, world-renowned, historically renowned theologian uh, named Paul the Apostle that actually, that actually says something. It's as if he knew some people would say something about this teaching of grace that he had. And so we read in verse 1 of today's New Testament passage, it's almost like he uh, was giving us a catechism, all right? So I'm going to read the question, and then we'll all respond together, all right? So the question that Paul asks this morning is, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Mm, man, I don't know about you, but... That makes a lot of sense to me. I don't know about those other theologies, but you see, Paul explains that the law only works when it's followed, and it's only to be a guide. 
It falls short. It cannot save because it cannot regenerate the heart of a person. The objections about grace being too good for sanctification, it falls short because it fails to identify the main issue with sin, which is that before salvation, before regeneration, before justification, before all these things, before God saved us, we were under the reign of sin, the rule of sin. Sin was our master, and we were its slaves. So the main issue, the root of why, why, why are we, you know, uh, headed for death? You know, why are we being punished? Why are we going to hell? All these things is because our Lord before was sin. But after salvation, our Lord is now God through Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul is talking about in sanctification. He's saying, how can you continue to abound in sin when sin is no longer your master? See, the only way to abolish, to get rid of sin, is to figuratively and literally get to the heart of the issue. You see what I did there? Get to the heart of the issue. Got to change your heart, right? See, Paul says that only grace, only grace can change your heart. Our hearts were dead, but God regenerated us. He gave us life. Now, this is what Paul is saying. He's saying that when we were saved, that through the salvation that we were given, that we were baptized into Christ, into his death, we were buried with him, and we were also resurrected with him. What does this mean? It means that when we were saved, we died to our former master, our former master being sin. And when we were resurrected with Christ, we, we, we had a new master, a new Lord, who is God in Jesus Christ. And so, we are no longer enslaved to sin. We no longer are directed by sin. Through grace, Christ's victory over death is now our own victory. His resurrection from the grave means that we have a new life. And that's why you see Paul constantly say, you know, put off your old self, you are a new self. Put off the old creation, you're a new creation. He says here that you have been, you died with Christ, you were buried, and you have been resurrected with Christ. What is he saying? He's saying you are an old person, an old sinner. You were dead and your master was sin, but now you are a new creation. And your master is now God, his Lord Jesus Christ. And so what Paul is saying is that how can we continue to love sin? How can we continue to desire sin and be directed by sin and live enslaved to sin if we have been set free from sin? If we are now one with Christ and he is our Lord. And so in verse 4 of today's passage, he says, no, now you are able to freely live in a newness of life as a new creation in your new self. And later on in the chapter, in chapter 6, he says, you are no longer slaves of sin or unrighteousness. Now you are a slave to righteousness. 
You are a slave to God. What does this mean? It means that no longer are you being pulled by the things of sin and pulled by the things of the world. No, but now your heart has been changed. Your mind is being transformed so that now you are being pulled into the ways of God because he is your master and your desire is to please him and do the things that he loves. The law only partly deals with the side effects of sin, but grace completely abolishes the reign of sin. And so this means that since we are dead in sin, that now we are alive in Christ. Sin is no longer our master, we are no longer its slaves. And so, as such, we present our members now as members of righteousness. And Paul says, that this righteousness leads to sanctification and that this sanctification leads to eternal life. We are not free. We, are, we have been set free to obey God, to love his commandments and fear him. And we do this not because of fear of punishment or condemnation because when we're under the law, when we were under sin, that's what it was. If you obeyed God, it's, it's, oh, you're fearing his punishment, condemnation. But now we have been set free. And so Romans chapter 6, Paul says in 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. This new life that we have been given this reality of grace that is beautifully shown to us. It is revealed to us through Holy Communion. As we are invited to the table of the Lord, it is a reminder for us that yes, we do still sin because we are in a broken world and we are still in a broken body. Yet, the table of the Lord is a reminder of the grace of God. It is a reminder that though we continue to fall short of the glory of God, that we are no longer slaves to sin. And so, he calls us, he calls us to come to his table, not because we in and of ourselves are worthy, but because he is worthy and he calls us to sit with him at this table. And so this table is an, a reminder of God's grace that though we are undeserving, he gave his own son to ransom, to die our death, to forgive our sins. And so that in faith, we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection. And we are released from the captivity of sin and death. It is this great saving work and this new life that we have been given, that we celebrate in coming to the Lord's table. And so, brothers and sisters, let us now come to the table of the Lord through his grace alone.